You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 129 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode, my guest is Tony Wright. And Tony is a consciousness researcher and author of the book Left in the Dark, also called Return to the Brain of Eden. There was one thing I found out about Tony after I talked to him that I would have loved to ask him about. Because apparently Tony claims to hold the world record for sleep deprivation with 266 continuous hours of sleeplessness. That is uh, 11 days. And I know my personal record is like three and a half days, so 11 days. That's quite a long time. Uh, Tony has said that his deliberate insomnia was made possible in part by his biochemically complex diet of raw foods, carrot juice, bananas, avocados, pineapple and nuts. He also asserted that his motivation for breaking the world's sleep deprivation record was neither fame nor fortune, but that his intention was to promote his radical theories of human neurological degeneration that were proposed in his book Left in the Dark. So thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for the invite. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. So could you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what you're doing? Um, my name's Tony Wright, and um, I've been investigating or researching uh, human origins, and particularly, I'm particularly interested in why we seem to be basically insane, why we're so hell-bent on self-destruction, and why we live the lives we do when it seems we're going out of our way to create uh, hell on earth. And you've written a book, um, Left in the Dark. Yes, uh, I, I compiled my research uh, into a book. Um, oh, it's getting on for more than 15 years ago now. Um, titled it Left in the Dark. Um, published that in 2007, I think. And then it was republished or published again by a, a publisher in 2014 with a different title, uh, Return to the Brain of Eden. Yeah, because when I found out about your book, I discovered it was really hard to get or very expensive uh, second-hand copies. So uh, I guess it's good that they published it again. Uh, yeah, well, it, part of the deal was I had to take the self-published version off the market, I guess. And But it's essentially... Return to the Brain of Eden is essentially the same text with some revisions and additions and so on. So it's a, it's a slightly improved version. So can you tell what what it is about and, and all this? Um, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> I, I should have a good answer after all these years, but it's uh, it's quite a, a contextual sort of subject. But it's, it's really looking at... Um, Again, looking at our origins and looking for clues in our origins uh, as to how we ended up with such a, an unusual consciousness system, such an unusual brain, um, and also uh, why perhaps there are problems with our mind and our brain, and sort of drawing on modern science, but also looking at the uh, I guess the ancient mythology and the ancient traditions that also talk about these things, um, and out of all that, I've concluded that you know, in accordance with those traditions, that there really is a serious problem, um, and trying to identify the nature of that problem, and then obviously, I hope what we could do to improve that problem, or you know, to basically treat ourselves for a condition that, for the most part, we're not really aware of. So you mean like as a human race, we are still collectively insane? Uh, yeah, it sounds harsh, but, and, and I, I'd say there's a degrees of across the population. But yes, generally, um, I think collectively as a species, we've, we've been sliding into uh, a, a form of neurological degeneration uh, and, and we have a lot of quite serious symptoms now sort of delusion and 
denial and um, a lot of fear and paranoia and our perceptual capacity is much more limited than it used to be. So yes, quite a, quite a serious problem. Um, but part of the problem is that, of course, we have to use our brain and our mind to, to try and decide who and what we are. And that's where the problem is. So it, to a large degree, we don't even realize how serious it is. So you mean uh, that like 5,000 years ago, we were more sane than today? Um, the timescales are a bit bigger than that. Um, but yes, it is a, it is a degenerative process. I, I would say more safely, sort of 20, 30,000 years ago, we were a lot more sane. But yes, it is progressive and, and it is, I would say it's accelerating. So I'd say we've been getting crazier more quickly as time's gone on. And what do you think that reason is? Is it just like technological advance or society advancing? I No, I, I think there are cultural elements that have exacerbated the situation, have made things worse or accelerated the problem. But what I was really looking for was the underlying underlying cause. And, and that goes back to um, our distant origins and how we ended up with such a large brain, particularly the neocortex, and why it has, in principle, at least so many amazing qualities. Um, and that, of course, is a, you know, still an ongoing area of research and debate. But really, uh, what, what I've concluded, just piecing together existing evidence, um, is that the uh, many of our unique features, particularly our large brain, were the result um, of a, a very unusual symbiotic relationship with the forest, uh, the, uh, the trouble of the forest, in particular fruit. Um, and of course, uh, we, we all have an idea what fruit is, but really it's, it's actually a reproductive organ. It's the female reproductive organ of the, the, the plants, the flowering plants. And we had this relationship, basically we're eating a lot of fruit and because it's a reproductive organ, it's loaded with all sorts of unusual chemicals. And it basically, it affected our physiology. It changed our own physiology um, in many ways. But in particular, it sort of kept us in a more juvenile state. And that allowed us to grow a much bigger brain. And the brain tissue, the kind of structure of the brain tissue was different. It was more juvenile. And that gave us, I think, a lot of these incredibly unique abilities and traits um, and when that relationship broke down that process has been slowly going into reverse our, our brain has stopped expanding it's been shrinking very slowly and the kind of structure we have the brain structure we have now is slowly changing it's it's basically maturing um, which most of us would think well that's a normal process and that's exactly what should happen but I think what set humans and some of our relations or relatives apart was actually the fact we were being held in a semi-juvenile state um, and that's what we've been losing we've been maturing and our brains been turning into the kind of brain you get in a more typical mammal which is great for survival it, it, it does, it's highly functional but it's not so bright it's not so clever it tends to be quite aggressive and competitive um, much, much in the, the sort of behavior you see in a lot of mammals, and I, I think that's what we're heading back to. And we don't even realize it's happening. You know, we think we're more advanced, but actually we're going backwards. But if you if you live as a lion, it, if you behave like a human, but you're a lion, it doesn't really affect the world as much because they're just living in their little area, and you know they're not making laws or building weapons and all this stuff. Sure, sure. Well, it's it's a, it's a strange paradox. I, I think we have the, the the juxtaposition of the the relics, the remains of a very unusual neural system, um, unusual architecture. Um, but half our brain, half our brain has has been changing back to this more primitive state. So we we kind of have we still have a bit of both. We're dominated by the part of our brain that's not so clever now, but we draw much of our insight and our intelligence from this almost dormant half of our brain, which is still potentially very intelligent. So it, it's it's a lethal combination in the wrong hands. You know, it, it, it's like having, a, you know, an insane dictator with a, a basement full of geniuses creating all sorts of stuff that is then used to do crazy stuff with. 
And, you know, I think we all carry that around within us, that mixture of madness and brilliance. Um, but the madness is tending to win out. So basically you're saying that we've lost our like childlike state. Well, yes, I, of course, in the normal run of things, that, that's the normal process. So most species, certainly higher organisms, let's, let's focus on the mammals, they, they do go through that window. And you see these traits even in, I mean, you mentioned lions earlier, even in quite aggressive species, there is a window where they're certainly less aggressive, more playful, um, that kind of aggressive male side hasn't kicked in and they, they can be quite playful and so on. Um, and I, again, what I think happened with humans is we were increasingly held in that state. And I don't mean that we didn't grow, that we were walking around about two foot high or anything. I'm talking about our physiology. We, we, we were still physically growing, but our, our physiology, our kind of hormone regime and everything was increasingly juvenile. And of particular interest was it kept our brain very juvenile and expanding. So we, we had this expanding and increasingly juvenile brain with some of those traits that I've already mentioned. So the, the lack of a hierarchy, the lack of aggression, the, the empathy, the compassion, the playfulness, a phenomenal appetite for learning, for absorbing information, which we still see in children. You know, that's a classic sort of window when you, you learn everything you need. Well, I think this window stayed open throughout our lives. Um, so, so yes, uh, I think we, we had that state um, courtesy of this relationship with the forest, this relationship with fruit. And when that relationship broke down, um, we, we lost that rich chemistry that was enabling that process. And we've slowly, ever since then, we've slowly been maturing, as you say, losing that childlike state, kind of turning into more typical adults um, and again, I'm not talking about physically so much, although there's some element of that, but more our psychology, more our perception. And that's the very unique traits that we had in our ancestral state that we've lost to a great degree, although we still retain some of that in, in part of our brain. And we do still access that even as adults, usually in altered states. Um, but yes, it, it is effectively a loss of a childlike state. So it's basically the opposite of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve that we got thrown out of the garden because we didn't eat enough fruit from the tree. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, these these traditions and stories are fascinating, and I, I do, you know, I I, I do find them uh, relevant to this whole this whole sort of process because if by definition, if our ancestors were in better shape than we are, then they would have had more insights. We may not recognize the language, we may not understand what's come down to us, but but yes, I, I think some of those traditions do have something to say. Um, and as far as the classic Adam and Eve story, you know, who knows the origins, who knows how old it is, but in essence, it, it, a lot of these traditions do talk about some kind of disaster, some kind of ecological disaster that goes hand in hand with a, a separation, some kind of disconnection from our, the essence of our ancestors, our, our, you know, a sort of original state. Um, and to me, these things, they, they make sense. You know, if, if, our, if our neural system, if our consciousness system was locked into the complex biochemistry of the forest, essentially they were part of the same organism, it was symbiotic relationship. And for whatever reason, we lose the forest, which can happen, you know, over long time scales. You can have drying episodes where the forests can almost disappear. You then end up with basically a, a mammalian system suddenly on its own. And mammalian systems do what mammalian systems do. They, they build a basic mammalian brain. And I think, you know, we, since that time, we've been left on our own and our, and our system is progressively building a fairly standard mammalian brain. We're not quite there yet, but we're not far away where we've, we've lost virtually all of those very unique abilities. And uh, I, I think it is hinted at in lots of traditions. Um, of course, the language is challenging to interpret, but the basic story is there. Our distant ancestors were in a very, very different state. Um, the kind of state that's alluded to is generally... It's not just, oh, well, it was a little bit better. The terms that have come down to us tend to be divine and rapture. 
you know, something very significantly better than what we typically experience. And then these traditions do talk about some kind of phenomena or incident and hand in hand with that is this, this separation and this slow progression um, into a more base state, a more animalistic state. And they, they typically talk specifically about things like, I think one term comes uh, comes to mind a lot is delusion, um, that, that we've become increasingly deluded. And I think when you when you start factoring that in, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. We, we, we all understand the definition of delusion, but it doesn't really help tell us whether we're actually suffering from delusion or not. If you look at some of the indigenous cultures that still live in the rainforest, even though they, you know, they can still have fights or jealousy and, and those kind of problems, but they still live more harmonious. Those, I mean, that are still not really going into the city that much, that like live constantly in the forest. Yeah, I, I think there's relics of uh, a more saner culture can be found in in at least some of these indigenous peoples. Um, I, I mean, what we've done in creating cities is 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 literally we've created the worst worst possible existence we could imagine for a, a tropical forest primate. Um, but I would say, just to be clear, that I, I don't think there are any human populations that have not gone through this process. Even humans that today and maybe for a long time have lived in the forest. Uh, I think this is a historic process where at, at one time, some, somewhere between, you know, maybe 20 and, and 200,000 years ago, the tropical forest that created this environment disappeared or virtually disappeared. So we're all by degrees refugees from that process, but some cultures have hurtled down this kind of degenerative path more quickly than others. And, and yeah, you do see that this contrast, but Pretty much all those indigenous cultures have the same story. They all talk about their ancestors being in a much, much better state than they were. So I think there are clues there. And, and yes, some of that indigenous culture is vastly less dysfunctional, dysfunctional than ours. But it's not. I'm not suggesting that anything has survived that process. It's really by degrees of degeneration. There's one tribe in the Amazon that has a, a good culture that I really like. Is that when a person dies, because you know, bow and arrow and canoe and your house and all the things they make themselves. So when a person dies, they burn all their things as well. So there's no concept of inheritance or or, or hoarding. But but now uh, the antro- anthropologists have discovered that uh, you know some of those tribes have got hold of like a chainsaw or like modern tools to help them living to live in the forest and and because those are so expensive to get hold of they do not get they do not burn those things so i'm thinking oh no now they've been infected with this hoarding mentality <laughs> well I, yes I, I think there is that cultural infection and it's it's insidious and it's it's almost everywhere now um but it, i think it needs a a neural system that's already in trouble for it to to gain a foothold. So I think some of these indigenous cultures, their neural system has degenerated relative to this distant time I'm talking about, but the culture they've maintained has kept them more sane. You know, there are two parts of this equation. There's the basic sort of physiology, the neural structure, the neurochemical regime and so on. Um, But part of this degenerative process I'm talking about has left us increasingly susceptible to what we kind of call conditioning or beliefs that that kind of window where most animals they they learn their life skills then the brain matures and then it's much harder to learn new things but they have they have enough uh, knowledge and experience uh, they've learned enough to survive and i think we've been slowly heading back to that process where we we have this shrinking window where we have this very plastic response we can respond real time and that's changed and and now we are more susceptible to this where what we learn when we're very young becomes a kind of rigid identity almost you know we we actually believe what we've learned is who we are uh, and and i think obviously that's almost that it's worst in in elements of western culture but i think the susceptibility is there in even these indigenous tribes so 
it, it's not like they uh, have, a, have a sort of much resistance to this. If you take those people out of that environment and put them in a more dysfunctional environment, pretty quickly they'll become more dysfunctional. Um, it's, it, they don't have much resistance because the neural system's already in trouble. Well, they did this scientific study where I can't remember the name of the monkey, but there's a very clever monkey that can use tools to open nuts. And uh, they did a study where they trained the monkeys to understand money. And very quickly after they understood money, the female monkeys started selling themselves for sex. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I, I think if you want clues about a less dysfunctional um, sort of neural system perception, you really have to sort of look at the the history and literature and examples of what we currently call altered states. Um, al although I think at the minute we're all suffering from an altered state. It's a very bad altered state and, and actually the genuine state is what's very rare. But um, you see clues in there, at least in principle, where the classic baggage of um, fear and control and possessions and, and money and all the kind of things we're talking about, uh, people can have experiences where that just drops away, where suddenly that's all meaningless. Um, so I'd say the the capacity, the wiring, the architecture for that ex experience or that existence still exists in us. It's just getting harder and harder to uh, access. And it's same right across the board. You know, I, I, I think all our distant ancestors went through this process. That, uh, my proposal is that nobody survived this massive drying where the forest disappeared by degrees the the different species that were involved in that process have, have gone into various stages of degeneration and that includes the you know i get asked a lot of well what about the apes that still live in the forest and so on sure it's interesting there's a lot of clues there but um again i think they went through this bottleneck Forest disappeared, the symbiotic relationship broke down, and the neural system started to go into a degenerative state. And once it's in that degenerative process, unless, you, unless you're self-aware and you can understand what's going on, it's very difficult to stop it. It's not enough to go back to the forest and eat fruit. Um, the degenerative process has a power of its own that's very difficult to, to, you know, to put the brakes on. It can be done, I think, but you really have to understand it. Was the human race more matriarchal, like long ago? Because now we're living in this more patriarchal, or I, I prefer the word like paternal or a dominator culture. Yeah, uh, well, I think there's there's already quite a bit written about that, and increasingly, I think, sort of evidence to support that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm. I, I think that probably was the case. Well, almost certainly was the case, but. I, Again, looking at this, the sort of power of hormones to, to shape and sculpt not only our brain and our basic physiology, but also they play a major role in sexual differentiation and, and how the, the genders mature and, and sort of develop differently. And I think going back to this distant time, I think we were held in a sort of barely sexually mature state, um, you know, just enough where we could procreate. And the difference is between the psychology of men and women are much less, you know, even today, if you, you know, I mean, it's getting difficult to see in Western cultures there's so many negative influences, but if you were to look at, you know, some tribal cultures, when children, before they reach sexual maturity, their psychology is much sim more similar, you know, the neural systems are much more similar, they haven't changed that much with the power of these hormones. So I think going way, way back, you know, neither of those terms would apply. I, I think, you know, we'd step back from this crazy male-dominated system. And yes, we might call it more matriarchal, but going further back again, I, you know, I think the differences between the sexes psychologically and behaviorally would have been very minimal. There wouldn't have been that kind of dichotomy anymore. There would have been much more similarity. So what uh, is the solution? What could people do? Good question. Well, my first priority has been to try and make sense of what's happened, really, come to try and come to some kind of fairly accurate diagnosis, and that's still an ongoing process. It's There's not much point in rushing towards solutions if you're not treating the core 
sort of problem or it's an inaccurate diagnosis. Um, but it's not difficult to kind of speculate that uh, if if our highly advanced neural system was dependent on this symbiotic relationship with the forest and with fruit, you can start looking at the biochemistry, you can start looking at the quality of the construction materials. When you think, you know, it's reasonably well accepted in, in modern science that our, the thing we have between our ears, that's each and every one of us, is pretty much one of the most complex molecular structures we know. It's phenomenally complex. And yet, when you look at how we treat it, what do we build it from? What do we fuel it on? It's absolutely beyond a joke. It's, you know, we, we treat our lawnmowers and our cars 100 times better than we treat the most advanced neural system we know. So we can start looking at some basics like that. Um, um, but then also moving on and looking to the these kind of Arcadian mythologies and the spiritual traditions and I think it's very informative if you're willing to look right across the board strip away the dogma and the belief and run the sort of idea that maybe they're describing the onset and progression of what today we call a neurological condition a degenerative neurological condition like a kind of form of dementia almost once you do that and you look at all these traditions they have a lot of information there. They, you know, again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. If, if our ancestors were in better shape than us, then they would have been more aware when this condition was more mild. In the, in the same way that um, uh, in the early stages of mental ill health or dementia, typically we're aware there's a problem and we can even compensate and, and be aware of it and so on. It's only as the condition becomes severe that we lose any idea that we have the problem. So our ancestors, I think, by definition, would have recognized there was a, a problem, and I, I think they really did, and they, they developed a whole bunch of treatments and approaches um, that are still embedded in some of these traditions, and I, I think really what we're looking at is um, combinations of approaches that try and take us out of the side of our brain that's in really poor shape, um, but it thinks it's okay, and getting us... To, to operate from the side of a brain that's still got some of this function um, is, is much more insightful, much more functional, much 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 less aggressive. Um, so, so I think I think there's a lot of clues there, really. And putting it in modern context, it's really sort of looking at the classic left-right brain stuff um, and really techniques to inhibit or minimise the effect of the dominant left hemisphere um, because it's so dysfunctional, although it thinks it's not. Um, and at the same time, techniques and processes that will engage the right hemisphere. So really you're looking at what we call diet today, uh, although diet really is the wrong word. It's um, when you're talking about the human neural system, you're talking about highly advanced molecular engineering. It's, it's about designing, constructing and fueling the most complex thing we know. Um, so looking at natural diet and then looking at this combination of approaches where you're inhibiting the left hemisphere um, and using things like, uh, I don't know, Vipassana, the kind of Trappist tradition where you s stop it engaging in the one thing it does to keep itself almost, you know, its existence, its sense of existence, which is speaking uh, what we're doing now. Um, and, and most people, if you ask them, when they're not speaking audibly there's the endless chatter in the head you know it's 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 sort of crops up in many traditions as well well that's that's kind of the left hemisphere um talking to itself because if it stops doing that it feels like it doesn't exist anymore um and uh, uh, you know techniques that that will engage the right hemisphere um uh, things things like complex biochemistry so again going back to diet but also um some of the plant medicines that have been used for thousands of probably tens of thousands of years, which seem to differentially engage the right hemisphere and not so much the left. So you can you can create a shift in balance, this kind of thing. So, so really, there's a lot of things that can be done. Um, it's just we've lost sight of the picture and a lot of people will try one thing. They might get into meditation or they might try a more natural diet or they might get interested in psychedelics. But these are all just small pieces of a much bigger picture. Um, and when we're dealing with the most complex consciousness system we know it, it really needs you know it's like the emergency intensive care room it needs everything to start getting a little bit of 
function out of it. Um, you know, that's how that's really a measure of what kind of shape we're in. We 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 tend to hear stories or read stories of these small glimpses of unusual abilities and get really excited as if that oh well you know that's some kind of amazing altered state well I, I think for the most part these are the tiniest glimpses of what what we're capable of i think it was the buddha who said something along the lines of the mind is like a chattering monkey sure well I, yeah I, again i it's it, you know all of this stuff is in, embedded in these traditions i'm what i'm trying to do is sort of create a, a coherent context a framework and update the language in such a way that it's easier for a rather stupid left brain to understand because it doesn't do complex theories very well. It doesn't do poetic kind of communication very well. It, it, it likes kind of rigid rational language. It, it, it tends to think that's a more advanced language. Of course it's not, it's back to front. It's a really dumbed down language. But once you start explaining things in a way the rational mind can understand, it's sort of, oh yeah, okay, I, I can see now that there must be a problem and so on. Um, and, you know, the chattering mind crops up in many traditions. And as I say, if you, if you ask people about the content of their chattering mind, the vast majority of people I've spoken to, they'd agree that they'd be too wary or too embarrassed to share it with their closest friend or partner, let alone anybody else. You know, there's this demented chain of nonsense going on in most people's heads most of the time. And we all pretend everything's okay. Yeah, maybe it's good to put forward these ideas in in a rational, logical way because the most sane people in the society today, they're the logical, reasonable people. <laughs> well, allegedly. <laughs> and and if, if, our, if, if our rational left brain is dominant, um, if it's currently calling the shots, whether we like it or not, then any kind of solution that's got any chance of, you know, making any significant impact I think it's got to be left brain friendly initially. It's 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 got to be something that engages the rational mind, something it can understand, in such a way that it's um, compelling to to make changes, to take the kind of action that is necessary. But if it's presented in a in a language that, on the one hand, may be accurate, so let's say some of the more ancient traditions um, and spiritual practices, you know, I think a lot of them are very accurate, but they're in in a language now that the rational mind generally finds difficult to understand and it's easy for it to dismiss. It's, oh, well, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But if you present it in this kind of modern format of scientific academic language, because the left brain thinks that's the most you know advanced language there is, then I, I think it, it, it makes it a lot safer, a lot less frightening to sort of approach these subjects and start looking at them. Can you quickly just for people who might not um, fully know, the left and the right brain is what? Um, well, a, a sort of more advanced neural systems, are, they, they generally have, well, there's lots of different sections and parts of the brain, but there's a, a general split, a sort of um, split along the midline, um, and each hemisphere um, is genetically distinct. Um, so each half of the brain, certainly in evolutionary terms, can and often has had distinct specialization or function that shows up, you know, going back at least as far as reptiles and certainly through mammals and so on. And, and I don't think humans were any different. Each side of a brain did have different function. Um, and currently, current thinking has changed a bit. Um, it was presumed you know, 20, 30 years ago that these differences in function were specialized abilities. So we had our left brain that seemed to be perceptually dominant. It had speech, which was presumed by the left brain to be some major advance. And um, it had this thing called conceptual thought, rational thought, where we, we basically create ideas about who and what we are, not reality, but we tend to mistake them for reality. And then the right hemisphere in humans was, I guess, a little bit mysterious. It was something to do with um, emotions and creativity and um, unusual insights and also definitely linked to more advanced functions. It crops up in um, uh, savant syndrome, autistic savant syndrome, where you get additional damage to the left hemisphere, so much so that it can't stay in control. And then these amazing abilities start leaking through. So quite a big quite a big split in humans potentially, although 
generally we don't see it because the left brain is so dominant. Um, what, what I've proposed that going back into our ancestral past, um, these specialized areas were actually ironed out, the neocortex, the new brain that emerged and grew over the top and became the kind of executor, the executive layer, because of the effects of these plant chemicals, became much more uniform. We, we basically had a uniform layer and kind of juvenile layer sitting on top of everything else and everything filtered through that. So we, we kind of had a much more coherent, singular sense of self. Um, and then when this relationship broke down with the forest and our neural system began to revert to its more original type, we've got the re-emergence of differences between the hemispheres. But instead of being specialized, as was initially thought, it's more a case of one side's crashing much more quickly than the other. One side's losing its advanced abilities much more quickly. Um, and unfortunately, the, the side that's in the most trouble typically takes control. Um, so yeah, we, we, you know, you've got the classic left, right brain stuff, but I think it's a lot more bizarre than that. It's a lot more complicated than that. 20 years ago, I was very interested in serial killers. And so I read a lot about all of them and I never, I never came across a serial killer who had a very healthy fruit-based diet, you know? <laughs> no, no, I, I think that would be unlikely. Um, I, I remember reading a little bit about this years ago when I was looking into the whole sort of worst aspects of humanity and so on and there seems to be a at least a partial connection with um, low brain chemistry and high levels of testosterone uh, uh, that combination doesn't seem to be very good it can lead to you know that that unpleasant combination of uh, ability to be totally psychopathic i guess um, with no c compassion no empathy whatsoever um but yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that can happen is that our left brain is now so primitive, it can run on pretty much anything. Not that it's good for us, but it can survive on anything. That's why we can eat junk food and more or less survive and appear to be moderately normal. Our right brain still has this highly advanced or relics of this highly advanced architecture. Unfortunately, the chemistry it needs to run is, is also highly advanced. It needs to be very, very complex plant-based chemistry. So if that's missing, A, it's easier for the left brain to be dominant, which is kind of what's going on, but also there's not much of the, there's not much of that kind of right brain break on our madness, you know, so we lose what little of that empathy and compassion we have when the chemistry is really poor. Um, so, you know, it's exactly what does happen. We, we become more and more sociopathic and psychopathic and, and, uh, by degrees, of course, there is a spectrum. You know, I, I'm not saying everybody's the same, um, but the society we've created tends to encourage the worst elements of that. Um, and I think we now live in a in a world where the the least functional people tend to be um, the most influential people. We have a hierarchy of madness, and um, the further up that hierarchy you go, the more dysfunction you get, which is a very disastrous situation because these people are making decisions on behalf of us collectively. And further down that spectrum, you know, there's, there is more insight, there is more function, but there's less interest in being in charge and having that paranoid desire or drive for control. And, you know, control is really just a fear in disguise it's a way of trying to impose some kind of sense of order on a world that you don't understand anymore um but in doing so it leads to you know disastrous culture and society like fifty thousand years ago when we lived in those days there was a lot of time i mean time was slower i mean there was not so much activity and especially if you were hunting or gathering it's quite meditative i imagine and i'm thinking that maybe like if if the human race starts moving into space, it will be a different environment. We can look at the Earth from a, more, a different perspective, and in space, it would be more nomadic, like in those days. But and we there's a lot of takes a lot of time to go from A to B, and maybe it's like a modern version of the nomadic life hundred thousand years ago. Well, there may be elements of that, but I'm unfortunately I'm skeptical that that in itself will solve our problems. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not inherently against technology. In fact, I think technology could play 
very significant roles um, in in supporting us and even our, in our future. But technology in the hand of idiots is, you know, again, an even bigger recipe for disaster. Um, and when you look at what we do with most of our technology, um, it's mostly driven by the military. You know, it's mostly about designing ever more complex systems to kill each other. Um, yes, there are some there's other stuff that comes out of that, but that's still where most of our resource goes. And I don't think it'll be any different it'll, in space. It'll just be the same old scenario, but in space. And uh, I, I think our priority, um, I mean, one of, the, one of the points I try and make is that bearing in mind clearly the influence we do have on our environment and on each other and the resources we, you know, we, we're using to, to affect that, if there's even 1% chance there's a significant problem with our consciousness system, our brain and so on, then if we were even a tiny bit sane, we should stop what we're doing, absolutely stop immediately and focus all our attention on that possibility. If it turns out that our neural system is absolutely fine, then okay, we proceed maybe more cautiously. But if there's evidence to suggest that our neural system is in trouble, then we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be attempting to do anything because absolutely everything we do will be a product of a dysfunctional mind. Our decisions, our agendas, what we think is important, um, it, you know, will end up in disaster. And I would, I would go as far as saying that's exactly what's going on. Uh, we might kid ourselves we're making progress, um, but in context, absolutely not. Most of what we've done is produce mountains and mountains of utter shit that we don't need. And in the process, destroying vast swathes of the planet and creating absolutely miserable cultures to, to support that that process. Um, when you consider how most people live their lives today, increasingly locked into this culture of consumerism and and so on, it, it's you'd be hard pushed to create a more inherently insane system. Maybe it would be good for the animals and the plants if we moved into space. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it probably would, and you know, I hear that sentiment in in various guises quite a lot, and and I can understand it. And in fact, if if there's no chance of us making any changes, and maybe there's some truth in that, but I think the flip side of that is that I think humans and and no doubt some of our relatives and ancestors um, really, I think at one time were something fairly special and something to be revered almost and something to work towards. I think we had some absolutely unique and special abilities and um, we certainly wouldn't be doing what we're doing now, which really on a collective scale is massive self-harm. That's what we're, you know, we're inflicting this on ourselves, which is one of the most telltale signs of mental ill health once you're self-harming. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think if we could reconfigure our neural system, and we already know a lot about how to do that, and start accessing these currently what we call altered states. Well, if you put together the best of so-called altered states and you can access those states more sustainably, then 99% of these problems go away because we just wouldn't do them in the first place. It wouldn't be a choice anymore. We, we'd, be, we'd feel utter abhorrence at most of what we're doing now. In fact, it's a measure of how insane we are that we don't, that we somehow take part in it, um, you know, and, and yeah, maybe grumble a bit, but... You know, I, th I think a, a sane reaction would be to sit down and cry for a long time at what we're doing. Well, if we can access those states, and, and clearly people do by degrees access those states, and as I say, we know a lot about how to do that, then we certainly wouldn't be doing what we're doing now. It would stop overnight. I don't know if it's done in English in that way, but I know in many languages, when you want to call somebody a moron or an idiot, you call them a Neanderthal, which is quite funny. Well, yeah, but I mean that that comes out of a you know a very very limited understanding of Neanderthals, and you know I think our understanding now is incredibly limited, but it's changing. You know, it has been changing a little bit, and it's quite clear that um, at least some element of Neanderthal behaviour and uh, culture wasn't anything like the stereotypical ideas that we've had, you know, over the last fifty years or so. Um, but, you know, I, I think in some ways Neanderthals were a, a, a forerunner. I think the evidence I've seen, and it's not complete, it, it looks to me like Neanderthals 
were on a similar path to humans, but they left the forest earlier or the, the forest area they were living in dried out earlier. And they, they went through that process, you know, earlier than we did, uh, more degenerate, the neural system um, stopped expanding, they became flatter, they lost that kind of domed, more juvenile proliferation. And um, yeah, while I think they did have more culture than we currently recognize, they were also in trouble. And, um, I, you know, I think we'll probably end up heading the same way. I don't know uh, how true it is, or I just briefly read recently that uh, some Chinese scientists think that the Chinese race or the Asian race, I'm not sure where they draw the line, but uh, evolved from the Homo erectus and everybody else from the Homo sapiens, or we are the Homo but, you know, it's a, di it's a different uh, ancestor. Yeah, the, the, there's more and more of that speculation going on. I guess there's more DNA evidence emerging that there were a lot more lineages, a lot more races of um, human-like ancestors. Um, although I think we're too fixated on that. Um, you know, I, I think the differences at one time would have been non-existent, and it's only since leaving the forest and, you know, as as we've changed not our genetics so much but our physiology our hormone regimes changed that started to throw up a lot more differences but i suspect going going back um you know i, I even proposed this in left in the dark you know before there was much evidence for this that we would have been sexually compatible for a long time you know we were essentially very closely related and possibly got isolated in different pockets of forest and then some pockets of forest dried out sooner than others And um, what you ended up with, instead of instead of these ancestors leaving the forest because they couldn't wait to leave to invent the wheel and make fire and create technology, which has been the standard picture because that's the way we thought it worked, there are really waves of refugees that that ended up being isolated from the forest. But when they they came out of the forest, they had a, a phenomenally intelligent brain, so they could survive at least for a while. Because uh, let's face it, a lot of our ancestors have died out, and you know they ended up all over the all over the planet, able to survive, but at the same time, getting slowly into more trouble because without this forest chemistry, the brain stops expanding, starts shrinking, and those advanced functions start to erode. We start to lose them, and um, I've yet to see any solid evidence um, that primates that left the forest traveled to other distant parts of the planet and their brain kept expanding certainly at the same rate i've not seen any evidence of that all i see is evidence of repeated waves of migrants and yes the longer that process goes on those that come out later come out with bigger brains but they move into similar areas they crossbreed there's back crossing there's all sorts of stuff so it's a very confusing picture but i think that i mean when you look at human origins If you want to find the weirdest thing in our past, you have to think about the context because people have, you know, the savannah or hunting, this kind of stuff, living on the coast, eating seafood. Um, but really, one of the weirdest things is our symbiotic relationship with the reproductive organs of a whole other kingdom. You have to think about that for a while. Um, finding species that will ingest, will eat the reproductive organs of a whole other kingdom. Now, a lot of species do this seasonally. You, you'll see that wherever you live, you know, birds, animals, they'll eat fruit when it's in season. But there's very, very few places you can eat fruit 24-7 for millions of years where it becomes a sustained symbiotic relationship. One of the places that can happen is what's called a non-seasonal tropical forest because you know, obviously tropical forests can be vast, but a lot of it's seasonal. You, you get... In the northern and southern climate, you know, the high latitudes, you get winter and summer. So you, you get the seasonality because of cold and warmth and so on. In the tropical forests, you get a lot of seasonality because of rainfall. So you'll get fruiting in, you know, whichever season it is. But within that, you get these much, much narrower niches of non-seasonal forest where it's kind of wet and mild on the equator. And every day is pretty much the same. There's not really much change in temperature. And there you can get fruit all the time. And it's interesting, I think, that our basic physiology, you know, our nakedness, the fact we don't do very well if, if we're not, if we don't have access to water and so on, our physiology fits that environment very well. Um, so, you know, I think our home, our original home was in these very small niches 
non-seasonal tropical forest. And when they disappear, then we're in trouble, you know, and we end up scattered to the earth, four corners of the earth, and we survived, perhaps only just, but survival isn't the same as thrive, and it's not the same as maintaining and expanding this amazing neural system we had. It's actually been shrinking, and I would say it's in a lot of trouble now. Whenever I've been in the rainforest, I've unless I'm trekking, but if I'm in a place where I don't have to move around, I'm always in only my underwear, nothing else, because any any clothes is just annoying. Yeah, and obviously some people still live like that. You know, it's as I say, in terms of basic physiology, it's perfectly suited. Well, I don't think that's a surprise. You know, I, we've had sort of 50 years of this savanna idea, and the savanna, you know, it's. Uh, well, compared to the forest, you think that the deep tropical rainforests, you get this vast expanse of woodland, then seasonal rainforest, then right in the middle is non-seasonal rainforest. And what you don't get there is grass. You don't get these, you know, the, these huge, huge savanna grass areas. So you don't get the big grazing herds. Therefore, you don't get the big predators. So deep in the forest, Relatively speaking, it's it's fairly benign. There's not much going to eat you there. I'm not saying nothing at all, but it's quite a chilled out place in terms of big predators. Um, you know, and, and once once the forest goes, then you're in trouble. Well, the last place you'd go voluntarily is from a place where your food's provided. It's warm 24-7. There's not that much going to eat you. Why on earth would you venture out of that into a place where there's Nothing much to eat unless you have to chase it, and mostly it's going to chase you. And the biochemistry out there, away from the forest, is insignificant. There's just not the complex biochemistry. I, you know, I, again, I don't think it's any accident that some of the most, not all, but some of the most complex neural systems we know clearly have some kind of connection to the most complex ecology we know, which is the tropical forest. The, you know, the molecular ecology in the tropical forests is off the scale. We're barely scratching the surface. And yet we've had this obsession that we had to leave this complex molecular environment and go anywhere else. And somehow that's where we got our big brain. Just doesn't make any sense. I always mention that when we're talking about culture, patriotism and racism, where I go, well, the most successful thing on the planet are the places where there's the highest degree of diversity and the less diversity the more it dies so culture and and those kind of things sh should be just more and more diverse because it, it thrives well yes although again we i think we've got a rational idea of diversity and then we've got what i call the really advanced diversity which i think is what you're talking about the kind of incredibly rich ecology that, to me, is highly advanced technology. You know, a single cell of a single plant is beyond our current ability. We, we get seduced by, you know, I don't know, um, stealth bombers and, and rockets and this, that, and the other. But it's incredibly crude, really. We, you know, we've barely scratched the surface of what, you know, what, how things work and what we could do with them. And yet we're, we're surrounded by technology that's so advanced, we don't even understand it. I'm talking about biology, you know, and, and the, the depths and, and the sort of complexities of that. And in the tropical forest, really, it's just mind-boggling how complex it is. Um, and if that was our home, that's where our neural system emerged, and that's where it, you know, that's where it thrived. Then it, it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, that's where you'd have very complex neural system. The idea that it would emerge somewhere else it seems a lot less likely anyway. I always think about uh, the octopus. Uh, it's one of the most... I mean, we couldn't do that with technology, the way it can co uh, go through any small hole or expand and contract and change how it looks. And it's, it's one of those most advanced creatures, I think. For sure, and again, that, that's typically what we look at. You know, we, we sort of we have these left brain parameters for how we judge things. But one thing the left brain doesn't do very well anymore is is the experience of self. You know, what is it like to just experience it? It's stuck in labels and names. And, and most of us, certainly in our culture, and even more widely than that, if you take away your name, your job title, your nationality, uh, your desert, you know, whether it's human being or spirit of light or whatever you want to call it. Once all that's taken away, it's what's left. And the left brain doesn't have much. 
beyond that. But when you get into these so-called altered states, as we call them now, the technology, for want of a better word, to facilitate that is phenomenal. And, and when you get into those states, um, nothing else comes close. You wouldn't trade those experiences for a whole lifetime riding around on the space shuttle or whatever. It would just be a joke by comparison. It would be like, you know, kids playing with little metal toys or something. It's like, well, no, when you get into those states, that's what it was really for. It was about self-awareness, self-experience. And that's not valued anymore in our culture, primarily because we don't feel it anymore. It tends to sound like some weird hippie shit or something. But when you get a glimpse of it, it's like, oh, my God, okay, now I know what this is all about, or at least what the experience is about. And it makes the best of our technology look like the complete joke it is. So if people want to read your book and where can they get it, what's it called, and have you done any other books? Um, well, it's uh, Left in the Dark uh, was republished as Return to the Brain of Eden. Was, uh, the publishers wanted to change the name. It's still available. You can find it pretty easily on Amazon and ordered at bookshops and so on. Um, I'd say it's it's a good introduction. It's a good framework. Um, I have been doing a lot of research since then, and my main objective is to try and simplify the theory a bit more and try and find a way to make it more accessible. So that's what I'm working on now. Um, I, I do do odd interviews on YouTube and so on, so there's material on YouTube which isn't so difficult to find. Um, but yeah, I, I'm working on a project now. I hope to be writing another book soon, which will I think distill the ideas to another level and, and hopefully make them much much easier to understand. That's my hope anyway. Do you have like a website or something like that? I do, um, although it's desperately in need of updating, but there are some links on there. So I, I'll, uh, it's, it's basically, it's left in the dark, all one word. So leftinthedark.org.uk. Um, and there's a link to another site on there and a YouTube channel, um, but it really does need some attention. It's It's not really my... Forte uh, website stuff, but it, yeah, it's a place to it's a place to sort of find some basic information anyway. Well, it fits with your theories, you know. It's not the exterior; it's the, in the content. <laughs> well, yes, uh, I, I hope so. But a lot of people are put off by the, the you know um, sort of appearances, everything these days, and I'm guilty of not caring too much about that. But uh, yes, there is information there, and there is links there. It's a good place to start, and there's a link to. There's like a book page. There's a bit more information about the book as well. So it's it's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in at least sort of um, having an initial look at these ideas. Cool. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Okay. Well, thanks for the invite. And I, I hope your listeners find it of some interest. <laughs> Go to leftinthedark.org.uk to have a look at Tony Wright's work. Now we're going to hear the track Secrets by Sam Quick from the album The Way Forward. Go to samquick.bandcamp.com if you like what you hear. All the links will be in the program notes on nationalbornalchemist.com And uh, next week I'll have a witch on the podcast. Freedom is in the mind. Figure out a million different ways Just so you can finally talk yourself into an early grave Guess you never heard about another man until you're late On your back and giving in the games that all the people play You can tell me that you're never putting hands on her again You can tell me you're a bigger man than you were way back when You can tell me that you're better, it's a single time event If I ever see that look again, I will not hesitate Tell me that Secrets Know your dirty secrets Tell me all your lies You're guilty until innocent Hide behind that secret Dark you dirty secret Tell me all your guilty until If you try, maybe if it's complicated, then you shouldn't have to lie. But don't put yourself into your predicament, you decide. If the effort's ever worth it to give up, tell me why you had to say that you would never put your hands on her again. Had to tell me.